Good morning. Uh, I'm Darwin Jordan, uh, one of the pastors of our church, and I'd like to ask you to join me uh, to turn to page 955. If you're using that Bible that's in the pew or the chair, that's the right page number. Otherwise, I can't say. Uh, But it's 2 Corinthians in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then the two letters of the Corinthians. We'll be reading uh, from chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. Let us all hear uh, the word of God. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I speak, we also believe and so We also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Uh, Thus the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, give us grace, we pray, to see the glory of Christ. If it is your great power that created the world and said, let there be light, 
that must shine in our hearts. So again, we pray, Lord, continue to reveal the immense, exhilarating, breathtaking beauty of Christ to us. We pray this, Lord, that you may be glorified. Amen. We've uh, mentioned it before, uh, C.S. Lewis's great statement of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, where he says, in that series are beauties that break the heart. And I think one of the great beauties, maybe in some ways the greatest beauty of the series, but in some ways under the radar, is the fact that hobbits are picked to destroy Sauron, the great Lord of Darkness. Hobbits, the smallest, weakest of all the folk in Middle-earth, the hobbits are the ones, uh, Frodo and Sam, who are going to go behind the lines and sneak, spoiler alert, to go to Mount Doom (laughs) and throw the great powerful ring into the fire which will bring down Sauron. And they have so many troubles on the way. And they get trapped by Shiloh, uh, Sam does. And uh, I mean, uh, Frodo does, wrapped up in uh, Shiloh's uh, threads. And Sam has to free him. And then uh, again, uh, they're caught by orcs and in a miraculous way, they are freed from the orcs. And Then in the greatest final show of weakness and helplessness, right at the edge of Mount Doom, right as all he has to do is just drop the ring in the fire and Sauron will be gone. Finally, the pressure of the ring takes over Frodo and he puts the ring on his finger. And immediately the wraiths, even Sauron himself, the great eye that's focused on the gates where all the... Uh, attackers seem to be and he realizes he has missed everything he has been completely fooled and the wraiths start streaming to uh, get him at the uh, edge of Mount Doom and uh, the fire of Mount Doom and here enters Gollum this wicked terrible gone bad hobbit uh, whose ring it was for so long and who still wants the ring and Gandalf had said, even Gollum will play out his purpose. And here he comes, and in excruciating thing, he bites, another spoiler alert, he bites his finger off. And he's dancing with the finger and the ring on the edge of Mount Doom. And then he loses his balance and falls in the fire, and Sauron is defeated. So the weakness of the hobbits and they're so weak that at the very end they have to be helped by the providence of God I would say the providence of what is good even by the providence of an evil creature who in his effort to do evil and harm in his effort to rob and take it for himself assures the destruction of the ring Amazing, amazing story. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the weakest, most frail, helpless, prone to destruction 
prone to stress fracts, every uh, stress fractures everywhere you look in them. And they use these people of all things to bear the treasure that is in the earth. And so we're going to look in this passage at three sections. They, they fall pretty easily in, in our uh, first six verses. And then the next five verses or so to verse 12. And then the last few verses to verse 15. But it's his glory in the gospel. We'll first look at his glory in the gospel. Then we'll look at his life in our death. I think these are in your bulletin. And then finally, his resurrection is our hope. But first, then, his glory in the gospel. He begins here saying, therefore, having this ministry that he's been describing since chapter 2, this amazing new covenant ministry of the Spirit. He says, by having this by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. He probably means here we're not cowardly or timid. Which plays off of what he says in chapter 3, verse 12, that we're very bold. So here he's saying, we're bold, we're not timid, we haven't become faint-hearted. We haven't shut up to avoid criticism and attack. And here Paul is playing off as he talks about refusing to practice cunning and tamper with God's word to renounce graceful, underhanded ways. He's playing off the criticism uh, that philosophers and teachers had of the day. They were compared by everybody to wine cellars who would water down their wine. And you think you're getting really wine, but no, it's, it's very watered down wine. They would cheat you in this way. And Paul is saying, we're not con men who water down the gospel so that it doesn't ruffle feathers or doesn't challenge people's lifestyles. We don't tamper with God's gospel to avoid rejection or to make money off people. Here's our commendation, as he says there in verse 2. Our commendation is we openly tell the truth, whatever the consequences, even if we keep on suffering for what we're saying. That's our recommendation. How about that one? (laughs) That we're speaking the truth. And I want to say to you, if you want someone to tell you that you're basically a good person and Jesus just wants to come alongside of you and give you health and make your finances and all your circumstances a whole lot better, then you can find people all over the place who will tell you what you want to hear. The truth is way harder, but it's infinitely better. The really good news says that God knows that your sin against him and your sin against others is far worse than you could ever imagine. But also that his forgiveness and his love and the power to change your life is far greater than you could imagine. The truth is hard because God reaches inside our hearts and he causes us to begin to be honest with our own personal brokenness and our failure to love him and our failure to love others. But you know a doctor that cares about you is going to find out what's wrong with you and he's going to tell you. He's not going to ignore what's wrong with you and then pat you on the knee and tell you, you know, you're just so wonderful. I just want to tell you there's nothing wrong with you. You're just, you're just a wonderful person. 
You're great. Don't worry about anything. When people are telling you that, they're lying to you. (laughs) They're avoiding the confrontation of the gospel, the richness and goodness of the gospel that invades your life and turns everything upside down but draws you in to be loved by the God of the universe, to be amazed at this God who would sacrifice his own son. And then Paul goes on because there's a lot of criticism. Well, Paul, all these people reject you. You're, you're, you're attacked wherever you go. People hate your message. How could it be right? How could it be good? And even the 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 people of God or who had been the people of God, the Jews themselves are rejecting your message. And so he says in verse three, if people reject what we say, it's not the fault of what we're saying. And he goes back to the analogy of the veil that he had used in the chapter before where uh, when they read Moses, it says there was a veil over their heart. Their, Their hearts were hard against that word. So that shows the personal involvement of people hardened to refuse God, hardened against the goodness of God. And here he shows that that hardness that we have against that word is not just an independent, autonomous individual carving out his own way, but that he or she is a pawn of Satan. Being blinded by the God of this world. Describing Satan as the God of this world is a way to say he rules over all darkness and wickedness. It is his kingdom. All the wrong that is done on earth is a part of his kingdom. And everybody a part of that kingdom. And we ourselves, if we don't belong to Christ, are a part of that. We're the blind beggars of Satan, the blind followers of Satan's rebellion against God. There's a terrible scene at the end of 2 Kings when Zedekiah, who had been placed by Nebuchadnezzar as the uh, ruler over Israel under him, Zedekiah rebelled against him. And Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem to take care of business. And, and, Zechariah and uh, Zedekiah and all of his uh, army fled, fled in the middle of the night. They were all caught and scattered. And he's brought back in front of Nebuchadnezzar. And all of his sons were slaughtered right before his eyes. And then they put his eyes out. And he was led in chains to Babylon. Do you see what Paul's saying? That Satan has put their eyes out. And they are led in chains. And that's why they're rejecting this beautiful, glorious picture of Jesus. This revelation of the goodness and greatness of God. And yet, all of us, by nature, will refuse it. Because by nature, we are blinded. Satan has put our eyes out. So you see, as we talk about, oh, I just refuse and maybe I'm hard of heart, but it's me and I do what I want. You're a part of something. You're a part of something. Part of Satan's blindness. You know, we've all seen those breathtaking sunsets, right? 
with the gulls and magenta and wine and crimson and violet all erupting in a fountain of color. It's the glory of a sunset. And the gospel bursts forth with the beauty of Christ's goodness and kindness to have died for us as God himself become flesh. It's the beauty of God himself shown to us. He who is the image of God, he says. The beauty of God in Christ. He's revealing this amazing love that God has for us. But left to ourselves, we are as blind to this gospel as a blind person would be in front of that sunset. And that is why he says in verse 6, with the same great power with which God made light at creation, he has to shine that light into our hearts. It's a sovereign, almighty act of God compared to let there be light. In the chaos and darkness of creation, let there be light. And in the chaos and darkness of our blindness under Satan's rule, God says basically, let there be light. Let the light, the beauty of my son shine into their hearts. So, maybe Christ is not in any way attractive to you. Maybe you're not impressed with his death in place of sinners. Maybe you see no glory in his humiliation and in his weakness and suffering. But I urge you to consider what Paul is saying here. That your eyes have been put out by Satan. By the one who Jesus says is a murderer and a liar. From the beginning. You could be a child here. You could be a teenager. An adult. And you may have to begin right there and say. I just don't get it. I I just don't care. I don't want to live my own life. And I don't care about Jesus. Please consider this declaration of Paul. That you're blinded. Okay. Just open the possibility that. Maybe I don't see the beauty of Jesus because Paul is right. And I'm under the blind rule of Satan himself. And that doesn't mean you can't have real questions. Meet with people. Ask questions. Figure it out. Keep seeking and discovering Jesus. Ask God to shine that beauty in your heart. But I'm urging you, don't submit to the blindness and slavery of Satan himself. Don't submit to that. You see, that's why Paul can say here in verse 5, this is not about us. We're proclaiming ourselves. He says, we're slowly dying out here, right? We're seeking to hold Christ to you, the real Christ, Jesus Christ as Lord. And the only Lord of the world is a crucified Lord. That should be a comfort to us. You mean the Lord of heaven and earth is one who was crucified for people? He's one who gave himself to rescue people? That's the Lord of the earth? The ruler of all things? What an amazing, wonderful thing. But to some of us, maybe that's an offense. Maybe it doesn't matter. But that's the Lord of heaven and earth. The Lord whose judgment seat, he says in the next chapter, we will stand before. 
And he offers himself for you to take all of your sin away. Has his glory shown into your heart? Well, his glory in the gospel, but then Paul goes on here in verses 7 and following to speak of his life in our death. He speaks of being jars of clay, and many of us think of the... uh, Christian group, jars of clay. There's where they got it, right here. I know where you got it. You got it, Second Corinthians 4, right. <clears throat> um, jars of clay. Interesting that they would call themselves that, right? To say, this epitomizes who we are and what we're about. Jars of clay. And he's, he's, he picks everyday containers, right? Ordinary, everyday containers. Described as fragile inferior, expendable, easily chipped and cracked, but they contain an invaluable treasure. And that puts all the emphasis on the treasure, right? And not the clay pot. The clay pot's sitting there and it could be cracked. It's not destroyed yet, but it's cracked and it's chipped. It's really been marred a lot. It's been through a lot. And you look at that and say, you've had that had that clay pot a long time, hadn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I've had it 30 years. Yeah, it looks like it. That's what Paul looks like. That's why he's not so attractive as a preacher, right? He's not showy. He's not handsome. He's not sharp. He's not magnificent looking. He's just ordinary clay pot Paul. But he's got a treasure. He's got a treasure. And this is diametrically opposed to what... C.E.B. Cranfield describes as where those people who everything is for the display of their own powers, one's own ability or eloquence or humor or learning or gifts, creating a personality cult. You see, all of this is kind of an exposition of verse five. We're not proclaiming ourselves. We're we're the clay pot. You see, we're nothing. We're, We're expendable. But we have this treasure. And the treasure is best seen in the clay pot. That's the point. The treasure is seen in the midst of being afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, etc. And so it comes in weakness. It comes in his battered and slowly dying body. He was suffering, we know from what he says later, from some physical impairment that made his ministry all the more difficult. And it all the more points away from Paul, this weak, helpless, hardly making it guy can't be the point of everything. It points away from him to the glorious Christ himself, who is his source of life. God himself is the one who sustains this Paul. And this is against his showy peacock rivals who are drawing attention to themselves and preaching their false gospel and are looking down at Paul and criticizing him for being such a weak, chipped, cracked clay pot. And as Paul says later in chapter 12, God's power is manifested in the midst of Paul's weakness. Here's the amazing point in this passage He's saying it's as we're dying that the life of Jesus shows itself. 
Through our death, the life of Jesus is manifested. So that it is in the very cracks of the clay pot that the treasure shines through. And in this, Paul becomes the foremost manifestation of Christ himself, who in his weakness and his humiliation and his suffering accomplished the most colossal act of rescue, the all-powerful overthrow of Satan's whole kingdom as he suffered in weakness. You see, and Paul becomes a very picture of the gospel, a very picture worked out in his own life. He suffered constantly for the sake of others. And it is in that suffering that the life and glory of Christ is made known. He has these stress fractures shot through his life. But he's been delivered again and again, manifesting Christ's resurrection life. But not just manifesting the fact that he could continually live physically. But the spiritual life he continued to show in the midst of his suffering. So that Paul continues to serve and love Christ in the face of constant suffering and rejection. He goes from Philippi where he suffered and he goes to Thessalonica knowing I'm going to suffer again. And yet the life of Christ shows itself in him. As he continues to love people, he continues to pour himself out. He's continued to put to death. He continues to pour himself out. Amazing. He said, as we die and suffer, the life of Christ is manifested in us. This is the most glorious reflection of Christ. And you recall, of course, as we said before, when he's on the cross, he remembers his mother. He remembers the thief next to him. He even remembers those who are persecuting and crucifying him, saying, forgive them. They know what don't know what they're doing. So in the midst of his own suffering, Jesus is pouring himself out in love for others. And that's Paul manifesting that very life. David Garland writes this, Paul is weak, disreputable, hungry, poorly clothed, beaten, homeless, and easily dismissed as refuse and the dregs of all things. He hardly serves as an attractive endorsement for the advantages of of becoming a Christian, right? If you follow Christ, you might become like this guy. Yeah, maybe not. I don't think so. You can see how Paul and his message would be easily despised, easily hated. They want someone more noble and upstanding and outwardly impressive. But here's the thing. If they fail to see the power of God manifested in Paul, they're failing to see the cross itself. Because that's the glory of Christ showing forth in his suffering, in his humility. There's where the mighty glory of God breaks forth. You mean this is God? This is God who sacrifices himself for others? The most amazing unveiling of the majesty of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And one scholar applying this to ministers. Ministers don't have to be wonderful. Just faithful. 
They need to be freed from trying to be wonderful in the eyes of others instead of just caring for others. Not trying to preach catchy sermons, but just preach Christ. Just preach Christ. But you see, though, Paul was this supreme example. Brothers and sisters, all of us enter into this same calling. All of us enter into this. And first and foremost, it's involved in our seeking to draw others to Christ in the sacrifice that is made to take Christ to places where it is really dangerous. But even in the sacrifice of taking him to your neighbor, your friend, your family, where the cost can be heavy, the emotional turmoil of it or the sense of rejection. And does it allow belligerence and excuse for a grating personality, etc.? But in keeping with friendship and kindness and hospitality and servanthood to speak the gospel, whatever it may cost. You see, there's where your willingness to die will manifest the life and glory of Jesus. And without your willingness to die, the glory of Jesus won't be manifested. But then all suffering and weakness and hardship, the extreme difficulties that many of you face in your families, immediate or extended, physical or mental, emotional problems with children, some severe behavior issues that some of you face, and they just unhinge you and you don't know what you're going to do. And in the midst of that, the life of Jesus can manifest itself in you as you continue to give yourself away to your children, your family, even your neighbors, as you are dying inside, as you are literally crushed (laughs) But you're not down and out. It could be a terrible divorce. It could be mistreatment and abuse in marriage that you suffered. And yet God will use the weakness and the suffering and the difficulty of that to make you this vessel to show forth the beauty and glory of Jesus in your life. It could be a physical problem you have, a physical uh, difficulty that you wish would go away. And it won't. And it, it hampers you. It hurts you. Yet this is the weakness that he uses to manifest his glory. It could be from the past, early abuse or abandonment or mistreatment as a child. And, and it, you're still hampered. You still have insecurities. You still have fears because of this. You're still struggling because of this. But God will use your weakness to manifest the glory of Jesus. He'll bring about love and, and sacrifice and hope. And people won't, won't believe the life that is in you, even though you've suffered so much. That's what Christ manifests in his people. And what Satan, as God of this world of darkness, would want to use to crush you and ruin you, God uses in your own weakness and brokenness and suffering, even in a greater way because of those things, he manifests his glory. Isn't that amazing? What Satan would mean to crush you, God turns around and uses, and even more of his glory is shown through your life. Because he is God and not the God of 
not Satan. It's really the same thing that Joseph said to his brothers, right? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so Satan means these things. People who have done them to you meant them for evil. But God will use that brokenness to manifest his glory. And his final point, I'll just mention it. His resurrection is our hope. How can we keep on suffering? Why do we keep on speaking and bringing even more suffering on ourselves, Paul says? He says, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us. That's what we believe. That's why we speak. Because he will raise us from the dead no matter what they do to us. In fact, our suffering and death, which from one perspective is the manifestation of our weakness also represents the final overthrow of this order. It represents the old order trying to snuff us out, but what will happen? We will be resurrected from the dead. This is the anticipation of the doing away of the God of this age and everything in it. God's people will remain with him to live forever in resurrection. So we're able to give ourselves away to even those people who are harming us because we have mercy on them. Because they're the ones that are in trouble. They're the ones, part of this old age and the blindness of Satan. And it frees us to care for those who even mistreat us. We believe in resurrection. That's why in 1 Corinthians 13, when Paul is describing love, he says there in verse 7, you know, that long description of love. And he says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Notice how love bears and endures Everything it faces and continues to give itself away. Why? Because it believes. It has hope. So it continually spins itself. Gordon Fee says this. Love has a tenacity in the present. Buoyed by its absolute confidence in the future. That enables it to live in every kind of circumstance. And continually to pour itself out in behalf of others. That's what Paul's talking about. Death that gives itself away in life. And so, as Gollum called it, you're all a bunch of little hobbitses. And there there was Frodo bearing a treasure that would determine the future of Middle Earth. The future of Middle Earth. And you little hobbitses... You have a treasure. You have a treasure that determines whether people will live or die. And you may lose. You may be entrapped by Shiloh, the spider. You may be caught by the orcs. You may lose a finger. You may lose a lot more than that. But you will cast down the enemy, even as Frodo did. Little Frodo Needing help from Gollum himself. And so Paul is able to say in Romans 16, 20. You will soon crush. God will soon crush Satan under your feet.
you little hobbits. <laughs> God will use our weakness for his power. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we praise you. You've taken us helpless, frail things. We who ourselves were blind, we ourselves would reject you. We ourselves would refuse you. And yet, you would not take no for an answer. And you shone in our hearts to see the beauty of Jesus. You won us for yourself. And we've begun to be governed by not our own love of self, but by the love of Christ for us. And Lord, we, we know we're just on the path and we have so far to go. We fail in so many ways. We're, we're just like Frodo. We, we want to put the ring on again. We want to live for ourselves still. We thank you that you will not allow this ultimately to happen. You will catch us up. You continue to rescue us. You continue to hold us. You continue to draw us along so that more and more we will be willing to lose ourselves that Christ may be made known. And in so doing, find our dignity as human beings. Oh, Lord, we praise you for your rescue in Christ. Amen.